Well, thank you, Bethany, for that. And uh, by the way, if uh, you really want to do something that would be worthwhile, talk to Bethany and volunteer to work in the nursery. Help is always needed, and the more people that volunteer, the less you uh, actually have to be there to work. And if a lot of people will help out, then uh, we'll get a lot of good work done and show our children that we love them and uh, be a blessing to those who work back there. And thank you, Brother Dale, for the music this morning. Appreciate that. And thank you for being here. I know this weekend falls at kind of one of those awkward times with Christmas being on Saturday and people are out of town and traveling and all of that. But I'm glad that you're here. And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. We have been uh, looking at this and thinking about the different sections in this chapter and how they present Christ to us. And as we think about the incarnation of Christ and we think about the gift that God has given us in Jesus, it manifests itself in different things. We looked one Sunday at uh, the gift of worship. Do you realize that the fact that you're able to worship God is not something you do for Him. It's something that He has given you the ability to do through your salvation by the Spirit and by the Word so that you know how to approach and honor God. You wouldn't have any idea you'd be worshiping a golden calf or something like that somewhere because that's the best you could come up with. But God reveals Himself and we respond to that and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Then we talked about the gift of rest, that they were commanded to keep a Sabbath. And then we find out in the New Testament, our Sabbath is Jesus. Jesus did the work to save us, does the work to keep us saved, and we rest in Him in an eternal and perpetual Sabbath. We saw last week that there's a gift of confrontation. The people had... Uh, been while Moses is on the mountain. They were down there and they said, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. And they got Aaron, Moses' own brother, to make a golden calf for them. And they said, this is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we saw that God hates sin. He has always hated sin. The people knew better than to do that because they had already been given the commandments. They weren't written yet, but they'd been given orally. And they knew that they were to love the Lord with all of their heart, that they were not to bow down to any graven image or even make one. And yet here they did it. And you remember, God calls attention to their sin. It wasn't Moses that found the sin. A lot of us kind of have the idea that Moses is walking down the mountain with Joshua and saying, isn't this great? We met with the Lord. Hey, what's going on? And then they were caught off guard by that. No, it was God who points out to Moses the people have built this calf. They've called it God. They're worshiping it. And then something else we need to remember. This was only about five months since they were taken out of Egypt into slavery. How quickly and how soon we forget. Moses is on the mountain 40 days. And 40 days can seem like a long time at certain situations. And yet... Isn't it interesting, though, when you put it in perspective, it really wasn't all that long. It shows the propensity of the human heart to stray and to stray very quickly. I've kind of joked, well, kind of joked with you before, that I can leave a service here 
at our church just rejoicing in the Lord and get out and try to make a left-hand turn on 104th Street, and I can lose everything that I got about that quick. And that's the way our heart is. The old hymn said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And that is so incredibly true how quickly we forget how quickly we become unthankful how quickly we become ungrateful how quickly we lose our joy and our praise for the Lord well that's what happened to these people and just the disrespect that they showed as for this Moses we have no idea what has become of him make us gods that we may follow just Disrespect for, toward God, disrespect toward Moses. And remember, Aaron, whom they're talking to, is Moses' brother. Can you imagine going to somebody's brother and saying those kind of things? And Aaron participates in it, and so uh, they're, they're in trouble. And that's where we uh, want to pick up. We're going to back up just a tad, Exodus 32, and let's go back to verse 7, okay? Exodus 32 Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly, quickly, out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made themselves a molded calf, and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked, that means a stubborn people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he, meaning God, brought them... Uh, out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented. He backed off from the harm with which he said he would do to his people. Now this is something that is an amazing event that takes place in the lives of the children of Israel. And you notice that when the Lord calls attention to this, because he is an all-knowing God after all, and it reminds us that he's a God who knows our sin, even when we think we have hidden it, even when we think we've covered it up, even when no one else knows, 
The truth of the matter is God knows, doesn't he? And God is the one who makes the confrontation. Go down now to where they are. And it's interesting that when God says that, he goes, go down to your people. Go down to the people that you brought out of Egypt. Was that true? Yeah, they were Moses' people. Moses had identified with them. He was one of them. And is it true that Moses was the one who led them out of Egypt? Well, that's what we celebrate. That's what we talk about at Passover. But it wasn't only Moses. And it's as if God is saying to him, these are the people that are like you, and you need to go down there because look what they're doing. And don't try to talk me out of this because they deserve to be consumed. And then he makes a very interesting statement. Did you catch it? I'll destroy them, and I will make a new nation out of you. In other words, Moses, you know how Abraham is one of your heroes? Yeah. And how all of these people, including you, are related to Abraham, have his DNA? Yeah. Get out of the way. And I'll destroy them and you can be the next Abraham. It'd be a little bit flattering, wouldn't it? And so God lays this all out to Moses. And I guess you could say that the fate of Israel was in the hands of Moses at this point. What is Moses going to do? If he steps out of the way, as God said, Israel is going to be consumed and be no more and taken off of the face of the earth. But you'll notice here, Moses didn't take up that offer. Moses didn't say, yeah, Lord, that'd be cool. I'm sick of them myself. Let's just do something new and maybe we can do it better this time. Moses, as was characteristic of him, he loved the people and he stayed with the people and stayed true to the people and true to his calling. Moses had been called to take them out of the land of Egypt and to the land that God had promised them. And Moses wasn't going to fall short of any of that. Now what we see in here is while it's not perfect, none of the pictures are perfect, but it does point to the fact that here's a holy God who has sinful people and there is someone standing in between God and the people. God's wrath and the people and who is it it's a mediator in this case it's Moses but we find in the New Testament that there's one mediator between God and man and that is the man Christ Jesus so why is it that the Bible says God hates sin and God will judge sin the psalmist even said Lord if you mark our transgressions who could stand because we're all guilty before you and who is it that is the mediator for us? And Moses pictures it here. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the intercessory high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we are to understand that, let's think about some things, which would be, number one, that this intercessor, this mediator, whomever he may be, stands between us and the righteous, the justified righteous anger of God towards sin. Now we know God hates sin. We know that because when Adam and Eve sinned against God, the death penalty was put upon them. Then the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And then he comes and he 
chases them out of the garden. And then he puts an angel there so that they can never come back. And God says if they come back and they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever in their sins. And death is a merciful thing, in fact. But God did something else before he put them out of the garden. He took an animal, an innocent animal that had nothing to do with their sin, and he clothed Adam and Eve instead of in their ridiculous leaves they tried to sew together. He clothed them in animal skin, which meant an animal had to die, an animal had to shed its blood, and it's not so much about the animal as it is the principle. Innocent one, an innocent one, died in the place of the guilty ones, right? And so God sets up this picture and this pattern, and he begins to reveal it and unfold it more and more and more and more. And God, the one who hates sin, the one who judges sin, is the God who also provides the mediator. It was no accident that this happened right when it did. It's no accident that Moses was not down there in the camp or halfway up the mountain. Moses was in the presence of God. And God was writing on the stone tablets the Ten Commandments for Moses to take down. But it's no accident this happened then. It's no accident God knew what was going on. And it's no accident that God expressed his hatred and his anger towards sin. It's no accident that he says to Moses... Just let me wipe them all out and I'll start all over with you. There was something that was going on there. And one of the things, it was a picture of what the Lord Jesus does for us every time we sin, every time we deserve the wrath of God, every time the accuser of the brethren, the devil, says they deserve hell. You said that those who sin will die and spend an eternity in hell. They just sinned. Bring it after them. And the mediator, the attorney, the advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, he stands up for us because if God be for us, who can be against us? And it's a wonderful thing. And so Moses is standing there and God says, let me alone. The implication is God is saying, until you set this aside, until you decide what's going to be done here, then uh, that's going to determine what is going to happen here. In other words, God puts the fate of the nation in Moses' hands and Moses is the one standing between the people and the righteous anger of God. And we forget sometimes that God hates sin today in our life as much as he did back then. God is angry towards sinners today as he was back then. And it's only the fact that we have a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have any kind of protection at all. Now, what was Moses supposed to think of and do with the Lord saying, let me alone... My wrath will consume them, and I'll bring up a great nation for you. What was he supposed to do with that? What was happening here, and why was that even brought up? I think that it was clear it was a test for Moses, and this was as much about Moses as it was about the sinful people. God knew the people were going to sin, and God knew what all was going to happen in that, but there's something here that he is showing the people and showing us about Moses, this mediator. What would Moses think about that? Would he be flattered? Would he say, yeah, God, that is a great idea. 
or would he not? And in this text, we find out that Moses, even though God says, step out of the way, let me consume them, and let me make of you a great nation, that Moses did what he always did, and that is identifying with the people of God. And that is the second point that we want to make about all of this. That leads us to the idea of identification. Identification. Now, think about this. Moses is going to stay true to his calling. He's not going to veer. He's not going to deviate. He's not going to do anything except be who God wants him to be. One writer said, The preservation of Israel was dearer to Moses than the honor of becoming the head and founder of a new kingdom of God. And so Moses, when he looks at the two things, he said, I can become Abraham, the father of a new great nation and kingdom, or I can stay here and identify with these people and plead for them. And when Moses looked at that, he said, the greatest honor is to plead for the case and cause of the people before a holy God and to be identified with them. And that's what we see in this second point. He identifies with the objects of prayer. He said, I'm one of them. I am with them. I'm not going to be disloyal. I'm not going to disengage. I'm going to stand up for them, and I'm going to stand with them. And it's as if the way Moses is thinking and the way that he acts is he's saying, if you're going to consume them, you're going to have to consume me too because... I'm no different, I'm no better, and I'm one of them. And uh, this is the way Moses always thought. You uh, remember, no doubt, that the Bible says that Moses had done this before. You remember that he was put in the little boat in the Nile, found by Pharaoh's daughter. She adopted him and took him and raised him, and uh, he was raised in the palace. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter eleven twenty four, 24, says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, listen to this, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So when God says, get out of the way, let me make a great nation of you, Moses did what he had done so many years before. He stands firm and says, I am one of them. I don't want to be the father of a great nation. I want to lead these people into the promised land. And how like Christ is that? When we think of Christmas, when we think of Philippians chapter 2, the Lord humbled himself, <coughs> put on flesh, and became a servant. What was he doing when he did that? He was identifying with us. And he lived a perfect life that we could never live. And when he died on the cross, God took all of his fierce wrath, like we see in this passage, toward us and toward our sin and poured it out upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus died, paid the penalty for our sins, was raised from the dead seated at the right hand of God the Father, and is Lord of all, and we've trusted in that. And he is the shield 
from the wrath of God and from the judgment of God that we deserve. And this God who hates sin loves us. This God who is angered by sin loves and cares for us because all of his wrath was propitiated, is the word, and that means absorbed by Christ on the cross. Think of that. Every sin that you have ever committed in your thoughts, in your motives, in the things that you've done, and let's be honest, in the things you were commanded to do but didn't do, all of God's anger that would have consumed you was poured upon his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus came and identified with us as a person, as a human. And you know what? He still does. The Bible says that Jesus is our great high priest and he is a sympathetic high priest because he knows what it's like to be tempted. You know when you're tempted, the enemy will say something to you like, well, you must not be much of a Christian if you're even saved at all. How could a Christian even think like this? Well, temptation is not the sin. The Bible says Christ was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. Sin's not in the temptation. Sin's not the fact that that we are tempted means that we're human. And Christ identified with us. And even as our high priest today, whenever you and I are tempted, whenever we cry out to God for help, Christ doesn't chide us. He's not looking down at us and saying, what did I save you for? What kind of a person are you? What kind of a pervert are you? What kind of a sinner are you? It says that he is sympathetic toward us because he has been there. He identifies with us. The Bible says that he is the one who is our advocate before the Father. The Bible says that he defends us, that he stands up for us, that he is the one who, as we've already said, is for us. For if God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring, the Bible says, any charge against God's elect? For it is Christ who died. In other words, that's already been dealt with. That's already been paid for by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man. This is why we don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to dead saints or anything like that. There's one mediator between God and man. Who is that, Paul? And Paul points it out very clearly, the man, the human, Christ Jesus. Why did he put it like that? Because as he stands before God for us, as he mediates for us, Christ is doing it like Moses, choosing to identify with sorry sinners like us. He would have every reason to reject us. He would have every reason to start over. He'd have every reason to say, just let them all just go to hell and I'll do something else later on. And yet he didn't. Out of his great love, he sent his only son. And the son came willingly and voluntarily, put himself on the cross and took the punishment that we deserve. And even now, after going through all of the humiliation and the pain of the cross, and out of the suffering that he had of being separated from his Father, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ, Paul writes. After all of that, what is he doing now whenever we sin? 
He's still identifying with us. He's still standing up for us. He's still pleading our cause. And he is still our advocate before the Father because those who are the intercessors, they not only stand between God and the person, but they also identify with the objects of prayer. You know, in John 17, when Jesus prayed in the garden for us, in John 17, too, it's kind of like what we see in Exodus. It says, uh, Since you have given to him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And it sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm the one that you've given these people to. They are my people. Kind of like God was saying to Moses, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Well, is that true about Christ? Yes, it is. But it's interesting. Seven verses later in John 17, verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so this interplay between whose people are there, the people of Moses or the people of God? And the answer is yes. Yes, they're both. They belong to God. They're his people. Disobedient, stubborn, stiff-necked, idolatrous, yeah, but they're still his people. And we could say the same for you. You may have looked at pornography on your computer and seen vile, unspeakable things. But if you're saved, you're still his person. You're going to reap what you sow. That's sad to think about, isn't it? There'll be consequences, but you're not rejected. You're not thrown out because you're his people. You may be a liar, but you're his liar. He's the one that is at work in you to sanctify you and to set you free from the sin of lying. You may be a person who has dishonored your father and your mother. You don't get along with them at all. You don't even like them. You don't even care whether they live or die. And you may be someone who is living a dishonorable life, but if you're a child of God, you're his. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can get saved and live any way you want to, but what I am saying is that all of us still sin. Can I get an amen on that? And we have an advocate before the Father, and we are kept by the Lord Jesus Christ, loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, shielded from wrath and judgment by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that when God deals with us, he doesn't deal with us as a judge deals with a criminal. He deals with us, you ready? As a father deals with his child. And there's a big difference between the two because the judge just wants justice done. The father wants the child corrected and to be what they ought to be. And so there's this idea of identity. Moses, like Christ, identified with the sinners, with the people. And thirdly, notice that this mediator, this intercessor, stands on the promises of the word of God. And Moses points out, Lord, if you kill them now, what's going to happen? What will the Egyptians say? Oh, God was able to take them out of slavery, but he wasn't able to get them through the mountains. Ha, ha, ha. He said, you're going to look bad in front of all of the, of the world and especially the Egyptians. You did so much, so much to prove your deity and your power 
through the plagues and all that happened in Egypt, now you're going to kill them? What would the Egyptians think? You know, there comes a time when we need to think about God's honor in the world in which we live. If I sin, if I'm under the discipline of God, if I am a joyless, fruitless person who claims to know Christ, how does that make God look in the world? And you and I all know because we've heard about it. Well, if that's any kind of Christian, well, my grandma was a Christian, well, my granddad was a Christian, and you should have seen the way they acted and the way that they lived, and God was dishonored. You see, we ought to think about these things whenever we pray and when we pray for other people, especially those who are in sin. Lord, I pray for this person who is living a life that is displeasing to you and against the word of God. And I pray first of all, Lord, because this reflects on your glory. Your glory is not being shown in them and through them, and that's what matters most. Secondly, Lord, I pray this because of testimony. What is it going to say to the world about you when they go to church, when they talk about God in front of other people, but you're not blessing their life because you're chastising them? What are they going to say and what are they supposed to think about the God that we serve? And then thirdly, Lord, I come to you because you made promises to them as a child of God. You promised that you would never leave them or forsake them. You promised that you would sanctify them. You promised that you would discipline them and set them free from sin. And Lord, I'm standing on the promises of God on behalf of them as your child that you would not lead them into temptation, but you would deliver them from evil. And that's where they're trapped and that's where they're stuck. And you notice as Moses prays here, he prays about the glory of God. He prays about how God is going to look in the world. And he prays based upon what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How could you do this, Lord, and be true to your word? Your word says this, I stand on your word because you are a God of truth and your word is always faithful. And so we find Moses as he stands on the promises of the word of God. You promised to multiply these descendants of the patriarchs and to make them like the stars of heaven. Well, we're not there yet, Lord. Look, there may be two million of us, but that's far from being what you promised. And you have spoken these words and you gave your word and you swore by yourself because there's no one higher than that. Than that. And you promised that they, not my children, but Abraham's children would inherit the land and inherit the promises of God. So God is appealed to on the basis of grace. You redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And uh, you said that they are yours. And he appeals to him on the basis of the glory of God. How is this going to honor God if Israel is destroyed? In fact, Joshua brings this up in Joshua 7, 9. He said, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off uh, our name from the earth. Then he says, And what will you do? For your great name. What will that do 
for your great name. In other words, Joshua says, if you do this, another time God threatened to wipe them out, what will that do for your name? And we always ought to be thinking about the honor of God in the way that we live and even in the way we pray. And then appeal to God's faithfulness, the promises of God. And I wonder if we could hear Christ as he's praying for us. What do you think he's praying? Some people might be thinking and under the illusion God is praying, please let their life be easy. Please let them have everything that they want. Please make sure they have no difficulty. And what I wonder is if Christ prays for us in our sin and he says, oh, Father, I pray to you because you were a God of grace and you sent me to pay for their sins. I pray for you because they belong to you and you've committed yourself to them. Even in the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant and it's my blood. It was a one-sided covenant. Oh, Lord, how will it look? How will it look if you abandon them? Restore them, oh, Lord. And then he prays to them on the basis of the Lord's faithfulness. Everything that you have promised them. Their names written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. You have chosen them in grace to be your children. Oh, Father, you promised to be faithful to them. And I stand here as their mediator, calling upon you to do that. And the Father does what? He does exactly what we find happening here in the... Uh, Last point, and that would be this. He anticipates the um, intercessor and anticipates God's grace. You know why Moses was praying and pleading for the people? Because he believed God was going to deliver them. You know why Christ pleads our case in front of the Father? Because God has promised to give us grace promised that all that the Father gives Christ would be raised up in the last day and he would lose none, the Bible says. There's an anticipation of a gracious God dealing with us and dealing with our sin, dealing with our stubbornness, dealing with our rebellion in grace and love and mercy. Do we still suffer the consequences? Yeah, many times we do. But even that is an act of love because it changes us. If God didn't love us, he'd say, go ahead and live any way you want. I don't care. But God cares and God loves. He loves us just the way we are, but his love is so great, he won't allow us to stay that way. The anticipation of grace. And we find that the Bible says in 1 John 1 verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Don't lie. But if we confess, or literally in the Greek, if we are confessing continually our sins, he is faithful continually to uh, be just and to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous. And for whatever sin you've committed since you've been saved, you have an advocate who stands up for you. He's between you and the anger of God. This is the one who identifies with you because he is a human, God in flesh still. And whenever the enemy brings an accusation against you, all Jesus has to do is hold up his hands and the nail prints speak on behalf of you. I died for them. I paid the price for them. That sin is no longer on the court docket because I paid the fine. And Jesus is the one who still identifies with you because he knows what it's like to be tempted, to be pressured, to be betrayed. He knows, he understands, and he is your advocate. And then we think about Jesus as the devil brings up all of the promises of God to punish sin. There the Lord Jesus stands to bring up all the promises of God to forgive sinners like you and like me. The God who has promised to pay for their sin, atone for their sin, forgive their sin. And Jesus appeals to the covenant, again with the nail scars. The covenant is not in their performance. The covenant is in my blood, and the debt is fully paid. Think about what he does, how often he has to do that, and how great it is that he does that. A man once said to his wife, I love you so much. I would cross the hottest desert. I would climb the highest mountain. I would defend you and I would take a bullet for you if someone broke into our house. And his wife said, oh, Harry, that's the problem. You always talk, but you never do anything. We're talking today about someone who has done something for us. How do we know the love of God? Look at the cross. Look at your own life. Look at it in view of the Ten Commandments and see that it is true you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And to the unregenerate, to the lost world, they go, oh, no big deal, everybody. Everybody messes up. Ha, ha, ha. Let's just laugh and go on. But when you look in the Word of God, you see a God whose heart is broken by your sin. You see a God who is angered by your sin. You see a God who hates your sin as much as he hated the sin of Israel in building the golden calf. But not only do you see this God who never changes in his hatred towards sin, you see a loving God who sent his son to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And you see that son raised from the dead, standing up against the accuser of the brethren for our defense, saying they are wrong. He doesn't disagree with that, but they belong to us. They're in the family and he refuses to let us go. And because of that, the Lord deals with us as children rather than as criminals. And all of this is an anticipation of grace. Grace that you received before the foundation of the world. Grace that you received when Christ died on the cross for your sins. Grace that you received on the moment that you trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and were born again. And the grace that's going to sustain you forever in heaven is the grace that comes into your life through the mediation of Christ every single time you sin. And that's why the Father forgives. That's why the Father blesses. 
And that's why we are able to carry on and why we will see heaven when we die. It's not because of us. It's all because of him. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we're faithful. It's not because of what we give or what we do or all the things that we don't do. It's because the Savior bled and died in our place on Calvary and finished the task, was raised from the dead, and pleads our case in heaven as he ever lives to make intercession for you, child of God. So serve your king. Worship your king. Deal with your sin. But understand your sin has already been dealt with by Christ and is being dealt with by your mediator. And think about the gift that we have, the gift to worship God, the gift to rest in Him, the gift to be confronted when we are wrong, and the gift to have somebody that stands up for us, guilty and as vile as we may be. He stands up for us out of His love, out of His mercy, and out of His grace. And because of his sacrifice. And Moses prefigures what Christ is actually doing for you. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Would you bow for me? Bow with me in a word of prayer. Lord, as we finish this up, we just want to say thank you for the mediator. Thank you that we don't have to face you in judgment because Christ bore the judgment on the cross. Thank you that we don't have to face you in anger for all of your anger was poured out upon Christ on the cross. Thank you that as we approach you as a father, you pity us, you love us, you correct us, and you don't reject us because of the work of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you not only for living a perfect life and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, but thank you for praying for us, standing up for us, and being the one who is for us in the courts of heaven. We love you for that, and we thank you that we find great security in that. To the praise of the glory of your grace, may the Lord bless all of us, keep all of us, touch all of our lives, and propel us on and push us on to do the things you want us to do until we arrive in heaven around the throne We'll praise you and glorify you and thank you for this. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? And if you have never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, talk to somebody about that. Brother Chad Trench, would you wave up here? Come see him and tell him you want to trust Christ. He'll get you with someone who can show you what that means. If you're watching by live stream, Call the church. We would be happy to help you out and explain the gospel and help you understand what it means to know Christ as Savior and Lord. And for those of you who do know him, 
Rejoice in the Lord because he is indeed your only hope, but he is the sufficient hope for everything that you go through, all of your failures. So come, all ye unfaithful, Christ has been given for you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Brother Dale.